Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the first Beeson Podcast of 2020. Happy New Year. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and we have a fantastic conversation in store for you today on the value of minority biblical interpretation. To help us think about this topic, we have two guests on the program, both New Testament scholars, both from minority ethnic groups, and both of whom are working on an exciting project together, which we'll let them tell you about in a few minutes. One of today's guests also has a special relationship with my co-host, our beloved co-host, Kristen Padilla, which she will mention when she introduces him. But before we get into all of that, let me remind you one more time that our fall 2020 admission deadline is February 15, and everyone who submits his or her application by January 15 will be entered into a $500 scholarship drawing. So please head on over to beesondivinity.com slash admission process to begin your application. Beeson is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school that prepares men and women for faithful gospel ministry, and we would love for you to join us. Visit beesondivinity.com slash events to find out ways you can be involved with what's taking place here at Beeson even before you enroll. Now, Kristen, would you please introduce today's guests and get our conversation started? Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. We're so glad you're with us today for what we believe is an important topic. Our first guest is Esau McCauley. Uh, Dr. McCauley is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He is an ordained Anglican priest, having served congregations all over the world in Japan, Scotland, and Virginia. Dr. McCauley completed his Ph.D. under N.T. Wright at St. Andrews University in Scotland and is the author of Sharing in the Son's Inheritance, published by T.N.T. Clark. He also has several other forthcoming works, uh, some which he may mention today on the podcast. And most importantly, he is married to Mandy, and they have four children. Our second guest is Osvaldo Padilla. Uh, Dr. Padilla is professor of New Testament here at Beeson Divinity School, where he has taught since 2008. He is the author of several books, including The Speeches of Outsiders and Acts, published by Cambridge University Press, and The Acts of the Apostles, Interpretation, History, and Theology, published by IVP. He is also almost done with a commentary on the pastoral epistles, and he is married to me. (laughs) (laughs) And we have one son, Philip, so it's a joy to have my husband as one of today's guests. So welcome you both to the Beeson Podcast. Let's begin with a brief introduction, letting us know who you are, where you're from. I've given a professional bio, if you will, but uh, let us know a little bit more about you, anything you want to say about your Christian background, and perhaps what has led you to want to talk about the value of minority biblical interpretation. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for the kind introduction. I'm Osvaldo Padilla. Let me tell you a little bit about my faith journey. Uh, My family and I are from the Dominican Republic. Many years ago, about uh, 
over 20 years ago, we emigrated to the United States. None of us were believers in Christ. But then when we came here, uh, my mother was invited to a church, and uh, she heard the gospel for the first time, and she became a believer. And then uh, my sister heard the gospel too, and she became a believer. Then I heard the gospel and fought it. <laughs> but uh, after a while, God's love was too, uh, too powerful, too beautiful, and I surrendered to Christ when I was uh, 19 years old. And then lastly, my older brother, who used to actually be a drug dealer, also came to faith in Jesus Christ and is now a pastor. So the Lord has been good to us and in my life and in my scholarship. I want to uh, let, the, let people know about how good God is and uh, the importance of His Word. Oh, thank you. I, I learned some stuff hearing about you that I didn't know before. Uh, my name is Esau, as they said earlier, and I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. And I grew up in the black Baptist tradition, and I'm from a family of clergy. So my grandfather was a pastor. I have uncles who were pastors. Um, my mom was actually ordained after me, and she went to seminary after I finished seminary and got my Ph.D. And so my family has always been, uh, there's always been a significant Christian element in my family. That doesn't mean that I didn't have the kind of the normal struggles and questions. It's when you kind of go to college and you encounter higher critic criticism, and the Bible goes from being just this kind of Sunday school book to this, con this contested thing. And so part of the reason that I went into um, biblical studies is because the those classes raised questions that I thought were important for me to answer in order to serve God faithfully. And the more I studied it, the more I felt like this was something I could spend my life doing, which is helping people understand how these texts continue to function in our day and age as sources of hope and inspiration and authority. And so what I... What I would say is I would hope that the goal of my scholarship is that when people, uh, when they read the stuff that I produce, come away with, with a deeper appreciation of how God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And I guess the way that it relates to kind of ethnic minority biblical interpretation is the more, um, or for me, African-American biblical interpretation, the more I began to read and study, the more it became clear to me how much my own experiences uh, influenced the way that I read the text. It influenced the kinds of questions that I asked about the text. But I want to be able to f be free to explore those questions and own the way that my tradition has shaped me. It doesn't mean that I don't believe the Bible is true or authoritative or the truth is relative, but it's that all of us are shaped, I think, by our social locations, and they just and they influence how we encounter the text. And so, I wanted to be able to write and think about that as a New Testament scholar. Mm -hmm. Dr. McCauley, that's a nice segue to the starter question I wanted to ask of both of you. So, you, Dr. McCauley, are African American. Uh, Dr. Padilla is Latino. And we're talking today in a general way about minority biblical interpretation. We'll get to talking about a special project that both of you are involved with uh, that has to do with minority biblical interpretation. But I think it might help our listeners if we started just by trying to describe what we're talking about when we talk about minority biblical interpretation. So, Dr. McCauley, uh, what does it mean for you as an African-American to interpret the Bible as an African-American? And how does your approach compare, you know, to the d more dominant approach 
in biblical studies today, and then we'll ask the same thing of Dr. Padilla uh, as a Latino. Well, I, can I, I'll say we're actually the ways in which I think that the, the traditions are united, and then ways in which I think they're distinct. I think that everyone is trying to, who, who values the authority of Scripture, is trying to get their minds around what the Scripture is actually saying. And so that means that I think that things like learning your Greek and your Hebrew and the basic principles of hermeneutics and how to read in context and knowing what's going on in a, on a literary level, center structure, all of those things are important. And I think that those things are kind of common across um, interpretive traditions. But the thing that I would say is that makes um, African-American biblical interpretation unique is kind of what African-Americans bring to the biblical text and the way in which our tradition has shaped the way that we read the text. And when I speak about African-Americans, I don't want people to get in their mind kind of a any kind of stereotype of what it means to be black. What I, ha- what I have in mind when I refer to kind of African-Americans are the history, customs, songs, and experiences that have shaped the African-American experience in the United States. And because of those experiences, we bring certain questions and issues and emotions to our Bible reading. So, for example, the way that I – one ex- example that I use is, is the African-American church is born – in opposition to, or as a redefinition of, the gospel that we, that we heard from slave masters. And so from the beginning, the African-American interpretation, interpretive tradition involves reinterpretation. So African-Americans were told to, you know, read the Bible, and the Bible said that you should be submissive to your masters, and that they, we only got certain parts of the Bible. We weren't allowed to read the Exodus story. We weren't allowed to read all of these passages. And so when the African-American tradition was born, it was born in this context we had to learn to read the Bible for ourselves. The other thing that's happening right at the birth of the African-American tradition is the reality of slavery. And slavery at the time the African-American tradition was born was the law of the land. It was legal across the South. And so the African-American tradition is actually asking itself, how did these biblical texts impinge on an American law? So the African-American tradition at that point was inescapably political. We, we, from the beginning, were asking how does these texts influence the way that we live today. And so that means that African-Americans in general, when it, as it relates to the Bible, are asking the question of how did these texts impinge upon the lived experience of African-Americans. And so, for example, the separation of kind of politics on one side and biblical interpretation on the other that sometimes marks some elements of evangelicalism is just absent from the black tradition, because we didn't have the space to say, well, the gospel is this, and our political reality is that, because we were literally opposing a law, namely slavery. And so that, that those are the examples of how um, those kinds of experiences shape us. One more thing I'm allowed to talk about a little bit more is that one of the other things that happened at the kind of origins of the African-American tradition is kind of this habit of canonical reading. And when I think about canonical reading, I mean that because certain biblical texts were quoted to us, like the Timothy passages on slavery, but we tend to say, well, okay, you have this one passage in Timothy, but let's look at what the entire Bible reveals to us about God's character and how that reveals what he thinks about slavery. And so for that reason, we kind of develop what I call the canonical instinct. Now, these aren't unique to the African-American tradition, but there are particular emphases that mark us because of our experiences. So when I talk about the African-American tradition, I talk about all of those things, the way that our history, our experiences, and our culture influences the questions we ask 
and the responses that we give to the question to the answers that the Bible brings back to us. Yes, thank you for that, Iso. That was excellent. And I want to echo what you say. Some of the the answers that I will give here are not unique to the Hispanic or Latino uh, interpretation of the Bible. Uh, so they, they they share many things. In some ways, to provide a definition of the Hispanic biblical interpretation approach, I will have to use the word reactionary, but that word has a negative connotation, so I want to be careful in using that. But in a sense, the Hispanic approach to Scripture is reactionary to the dominant, uh, what I would call Western European higher critical dominated approach to the Bible. One of the characteristics of that approach to the Bible, not everyone, but many in the higher critical uh, method and so on, was this idea of putting yourself and your sense of logic and your sense of reason above the biblical texts. And uh, the Hispanic approach to the Bible tends to be one that seeks to put itself under the biblical texts. And so, like you said, Iso, it, it follows that canonical logic, uh, that canonical feeling or sense. So, again, it doesn't mean that everyone who practices Hispanic biblical interpretation, whatever that means, I'm, I'm going to get there, uh, but it doesn't mean that everyone who practices that is a devoted believer in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. But that seems to be the tendency that I'm finding in Hispanic biblical interpretation. Uh, Hispanic biblical interpretation is birthed, in a sense, because of the uh, colonial and ethnic realities that, in a way, gave birth to Latin America. Uh, what you have is a people who were colonized by the people of Spain, who brought a particular strain of Roman Catholicism to Latin America, uh, but you also, of course, have the native people from uh, Latin America. And then we know that um, hundreds of thousands of uh, African slaves were brought to Latin America, especially to the islands. So we have this tremendous mix uh, in Latin America, again, especially in the Caribbean, of uh, Hispanic and African and native and all mixed together. And that produces a certain way of, of coming to the Bible. Uh, one of the ways that it does is that there seems to be an openness to the supernatural uh, in Hispanic uh, interpretation of the Bible. Uh, now, that could be—that doesn't have necessarily have to be positive, uh, but oftentimes, because there is this inherent belief in the supernatural, when we come to the biblical text, I get the sense that it's, uh, we don't come with a, a wall of doubt— against the stories of the Bible, uh, but rather with an openness to it, uh, partly because of that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I would say that the, the Hispanic approach to, to the Bible is this idea that uh, we interpret the Bible as a community. That's extremely important. Uh, of course, you can interpret the Bible as an individual. That we, we are individuals. But uh, great weight is given to interpreting the Bible as a church together as a community. That's extremely important to the, to the uh, interpretation of the Bible. Uh, number two, uh, there's a tendency to come to the Bible as under the text, letting the Bible uh, tell us <laughs> what we should believe. And there's this uh, almost inherent, inherent is not the right word because we need the help of the Holy Spirit to believe the Word of God. But there's almost this, in, this inherent sense that hey, this book is true, the Bible is true, it's authoritative, and we have to submit to it. And, uh, and so that's a place to begin with Hispanic biblical interpretation. 
building off of your answers, uh, I want to ask about how your particular ethnicity and social location affect translation of the Bible. And perhaps you can give some concrete examples from Scripture as we think about how your ethnicity and social location affect translation and your interpretation of it. Yes, I think that one of the things that translation involves a translation involves moving something from a host culture, and language encodes culture. So when something is written in Greek or Hebrew, it carries with it the nuances and things to communicate in a certain way to a Greek audience or a Hebrew audience or an Aramaic audience. Now, if you just simply translate those words from Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic into English, what is what is heard by an English speaker may not be the same thing as intended by a Hebrew or a Greek scholar, a Greek, the Greek writer of the text. And so every translation is trying to figure out, well, what's the best way to communicate what God inspired the authors to write into this new culture? So if you go on a mission field, missionaries often bring together committees of people from different parts of the community to make sure that what the Bible is trying to communicate is understood correctly. And so part of but that's that's one part is that translation involves getting these things right in the language. But another thing is that my ethnic identity causes me, which I talked about, to have certain questions or certain concerns that I bring to the Bible that other people might not, might not bring. So, for example, as an African American who was kind of comes in a context where we're often seen as being absent from the biblical text and that Africans aren't the important characters in the Bible. Well, I might have particular concerns or questions related to that. Now, that doesn't necessarily influence how I translate a Greek verb. If the verb, if the, if the verb means love, I'm not going to like translate the verb to mean hate because I'm black. But it does mean that I pay closer attention to certain passages, and because I might pay attention to certain passages that other scholars might neglect, it might make it more likely for me to give an accurate translation. And what I'm saying is, is that our social location motivates us to attend to different passages. And so sometimes if you have a monocultural um, translation committee and they're all asking the same kinds of questions, then they might have the same blind spots. And so having someone who's not a part of, who's from a different group, just allows people to say, well, hold on, well, are we really sure that we translated this passage as, as best we could? And that means that not just me, but the entire committee turns their attention to this passage and say, well, you know what, here's a way in which we did communicate this as clearly. And there are kind of examples in Old and New Testament of just how these blind spots might have influenced some of the questions or the ways that we've that passed them and translated. I think, for example, of Song of Songs, when um, it's um, it talks about the maiden is saying, "I'm dark but lovely," and so there, her she's talking about the color of her skin and the way in which that's translated, and the translation of that conjunction, "I'm dark and lovely," "I'm dark and lovely," is an important decision, which is in some part settled by the analysis of the Hebrew. But I can, I can have you i would i would be i would venture to say that a woman of color is going to be very keen to make sure that we that this passage gets two way and it's not translated haphazardly and so those are the kinds of examples that i have in mind when i say the diversity on translation matter the same thing with women i think that and it doesn't mean that women are only concerned with passages related to women in the new testament 
But because of the history of the way that those passages have been used to speak about women in ministry, they're probably going to, they might potentially address those things with much, with, with a lot of care and attention. And so when I think about diversity of translation committees, what I'm speaking about is the spread of the emotional energy across the canon so that each passage receives due attention. Let me start with the ethnic location. So as Hispanics, if you ask us who we are, our identity, one of the ways that we're going to answer that question Maybe the main way that we're going to answer that question is we're going to tell you a story. Who are you? We will sit you down and we'll tell you probably too long, but we'll tell you a long story. That's important because in some cultures, uh, the way you get at truth, the way you get at understanding uh, God and yourself uh, may be more by logic and metaphysics and uh, and more using uh, propositional statements and so on. I think one of the gifts of the Hispanic, and not just the Hispanics, but but since I'm Hispanic, I'm talking about it, but one of the gifts of the Hispanic uh, biblical interpretation is the importance of the narrative of the Bible to talk about who God is and who we are. I remember, this is, you might be shocked at this, I remember as a very young believer uh, studying the book of Acts in my church, uh, which, of course, is mostly narrative, mostly stories. And I remember the pastor telling us that, uh, and he was Hispanic, but he told us, don't use the book of Acts to draw your doctrine for, from the, for the Bible, because that's your stories. Use the letters of Paul, because those are propositional, logical, A to B to C statements. And uh, those, the letters of Paul are going to tell you more about who God is and who you are doctrinally. And I believe that <laughs> for the longest time, of course, until you know you go to, to university and to seminary and you learn better. But this is something that, that we can provide, uh, the importance. And, and this has strong repercussions for how you read the New Testament. Oftentimes, we go to Paul for the doctrine of the New Testament. For example, for the doctrine of the significance of the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But many times, we don't go to the Gospels. In fact, there's one scholar, his name was Martin Kehle, who said that uh, the Gospels are uh, extended introductions with a passion narrative. So uh, all that matters is uh, the passion, not the rest of the story of uh, the ministry and the life of Jesus. And as Hispanics, because stories are important for us, we come to the Gospels and we're interested to learn about God, the meaning of the life and the death of Christ, the death of Christ for us, even from the beginning of the gospel, not, gospels, not just the end of the gospels or what the apostle Paul says. So uh, that is something that is very important. Uh, secondly, about translation, and let me speak here about uh, diversity in the sense of bilingualism. For many people in the United States, uh, Chinese Americans, uh, Vietnamese Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans. Bilingualism is a way of life. It is a way of existence. It has shaped you uh, for many, many years so that you are uh, able to think in two languages and render one thing into the other language and vice versa on the spot. It, it, it just becomes almost, it, it becomes almost natural for you to do. And I think that it is a great loss when, when believers who are bilingual are not brought into Bible translation committees with the facility they have uh, to help in the rendering of the Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic uh, back into English. And so that, that's, uh, that's where I think one of the big losses uh, has happened. Yeah, that's very helpful. 
One of the reasons we have the two of you in particular on the podcast today is that Kristen and I just happen to know that you are both now working on a project called the New Testament in Color that has a lot to do with the themes we're discussing. Can you tell us a little bit about the New Testament in Color? Uh, where does it come from? Who's involved in it? And what's it going to be? Yeah, um, it started off with a, a slight frustration that I had in class. Is I was teaching introduction to the New Testament, which is kind of standard in seminaries and colleges. And so I'm trying to assign students from diverse perspectives. But a lot of times I found myself trying to either have one that was really long, because you're trying to find Asian American, African American, Latino American, those are just a bunch of different books. And one of the things that, that I found also when I was doing that is that a lot of it is oriented towards getting kind of white students to pay attention to African American concerns or African Americans in particular speaking to other African Americans about their concern. Those are two of the ways in which some of that literature was written. And what I realized is there's not actually a lot of conversation across ethnic groups. And so having African Americans and Asian Americans in the same book is relatively rare. And so one of the things I said, well, we have this thing called the New Testament in color. We can bring together African Americans, Latino American, Asian American, First Nations, and men and women together. And by by the very nature of the project testifies itself to what we think the body of Christ is, and that we think that we need all of each other to, to read the to read the Bible correctly. And so we wanted to make sure that, and obviously there there is so much ethnic diversity in the United States and and in the world that it'd be impossible to include every single group on every single topic. What we tried to do is we tried to gather get together black, white, Asian and Latino and First Nation scholars to work on this project together. And what we did is that we have a commentary on each book of the Bible, and they're headed headed by different ethnic minorities. So someone's doing John, someone's doing Matthew. And we also have articles that we think that are particularly concerned to um, different ethnic groups. So we have an article in the commentary on Asian American biblical interpretation. We have a com- we have a an article on African American biblical interpretation. We have an article on immigration and the kingdom of God. We have an ar- um, article on environmental ethics. And so what we're trying to do is in within the commentary itself or within the articles foster a conversation across ethnic groups within the United States in which people are owning both their ethnic identity and the great tradition. Because one of the other things we were talking about is that we think that despite our diversity, our ethnic diversity, what unites us is our common love for Christ. And so we're asking our writers to, that we're saying that we're, we're united by kind of the, this belief in, in what we call the great tradition, which is most clearly reflected in texts like the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, and this idea that the Bible is for us kind of this, this final guide and what we do think and say. And so with that being kind of the center of, kind of the, the, the theological center of what we're doing, the, we're giving people the space to embrace who they are in Christ and to bring all of who they are into the interpretive process. Because to be honest, there's these two tensions that are sometimes felt within, at least for me, with writing as an African-American Christian. There are certain people who are really excited about what I can do with the Greek and the Hebrew and my interpretation of the passage, but when I bring my ethnic identity into the passage and say, how does this speak to my context and my culture, people can sometimes be hesitant. And on the other side, there are, ton- there are some people who are very excited for me to talk about my experiences 
as an African-American. But when I want to say, but as an African-American Christian, these texts to me still form the way that, that I see the world, and I want to treat these texts as authoritative. And so that kind of sometimes strong belief in that it, sometimes that belief in kind of the authority of Scripture also creates tension. And so what we wanted to say is that although we all come from different backgrounds, we would articulate this differently. This commitment to bring those two things together is something I think marks this this process. I'm really thrilled about this project. That That is really the dream of Esau, and uh, he was kind to invite me to uh, help with it. Uh, just want to continue to emphasize that uh, even though well, we all come from different backgrounds and so on uh, who are composing the commentary, there is a strong commitment uh, to the scriptures, to the inspiration of the Bible, to the authority of the Bible. And we're working under the scriptures uh, under one gospel together. Uh, in a sense, the, the New Testament in color is a traditional introduction to the New Testament because for every book that uh, will be written about, you're going to have your standard introduction. So, for example, who wrote this book? Uh, letter, and where was it written, and what was the purpose, and so on and so on. And then there is going to be commentary, of course, on the content of the particular book we are talking about, uh, and some of that will dip into the Greek sometimes, but also uh, we're going to be bringing in our location as uh, Hispanics and Africans and Asians into the project. Uh, and just a real quick example, one of our colleagues uh, was writing about uh, the fatherhood of God uh, in in her uh, piece, and uh, her particular culture uh, has forced her to view uh, parenthood in a way that wasn't necessarily healthy. And then uh, when she comes and reads the gospel text where Jesus talks about uh, what it means to be a father and his relationship to the Heavenly Father, it totally transformed uh, her understanding of God because her, under, her understanding of God had been shaped by her culture through her experience of fatherhood and, and parenthood, and that wasn't necessarily a positive thing. We usually talk about positive things that come from the minority biblical scholarship, but there are also negative things that come from that, and the Bible uh, corrects those things sometimes. So I was really touched by reading her piece, and I suspect that uh, uh, that experience of of, of uh, her coming to the text through her ethnicity will also help other people who read the New Testament in color. Yeah, when we talk about like positives and negatives, and this is the language that I, that I try to use, that the gospel brings unique challenges to each culture, and the gospel doesn't transform every culture in exactly the same way. Because every person, every culture is was created by image bearers. So that culture is going to reflect something of God within it. But it's also going to reflect something of the fall, because every culture is made up of sinful people. And so when the gospel comes to the culture, there are things in the culture that are going to have to change, but there are also things in that culture that are going to be, that are going to shine light on neglected aspects of the Christian tradition that other cultures might reach. So when we talk about the negatives of minority biblical interpretation, we're not saying that there's anything bad about being an ethnic minority. We're talking about the way, in the particular ways which the gospel challenges us. One of the examples I use in an African-American context of about the different different ways that the gospel challenges our community is, is themes like forgiveness. And so there's a huge emphasis on forgiveness in the New Testament. But and, and obviously like everyone struggles to forgive, but with with an, in the African American context when there's this huge reality of slavery and the Jim Crow laws and lynching and the present and 
past and ongoing oppression of people of color, this Christian theme of forgiveness strikes us as a particularly difficult thing. Then someone else who might come from a family who did participate in slavery or ancestors, they're receiving the forgiveness. And so that's one particular way in which African Americans wrestling with what it means to forgive is one way in which our culture kind of is pressed or pushed by the gospel. So what I'd like to talk about is a dialogical method of interpretation, which means that the Bible and cultures enter into dialogue, where the, where the culture asks questions of the Bible, but the Bible also gets to speak back. And it gets to speak back and not only tell us the things we want to hear, but shape the way that our culture lives and functions in the world. And I think that every culture, black culture, white culture, Asian culture, and, and, and I know these things aren't mono, monolithic, but each one of those cultures in their own ways are challenged by different aspects of the gospel. And any preacher will tell you that a sermon in one congregation is heard one way, and a sermon in a different congregation, you have to preach a different sermon. And because we're all different, basically we all sometimes need to hear different sermons, even arising from the same text. But what I think is important about our project is, is that sometimes listening in on those way, the ways in which other people struggle with these texts allows us to understand our brothers and sisters more, and it also opens us up to things we had never considered. And so I think that's probably one of the benefits from what we're doing is that we're we're providing people a window into other cultures. So I just know that there's tons of, for example, um, before I began, well, part of the origin of this process was like me recognizing in my own self how much energy I had spent begging people to listen to the African-American tradition while hypocritically ignoring the Asian-American tradition or the Latino tradition. I said, well, I can't ask people to listen to me if I'm not willing to listen to other people. And one of the other things I probably want to say about this project is that we were intentional about focusing largely on North American ethnic minorities because it's as important as the global voices are, that it's very easy for the project to become too diffused to have a coherent voice. And one of the things that unites us, um, despite our ethnic diversity, is we're all struggling with the idea of what does it mean to be a Christian here in these United States. As we think about this conversation in light of a seminary context or undergrad theology program and your training future ministers of the gospel, how important is this conversation with those who will be ministers in churches? What does this conversation look like? And how does your ethnicity play out in the classroom in the way that you teach? Well, one of the encouragements I have to, especially to seminary uh, deans, and I have one here sitting across the table, but... <laughs> Uh, precedence and so on is to uh, do your best to look at uh, not at the extent of, of other uh, competent candidates, but uh, do your best to seek out scholars, uh, systematic theologians, uh, missiologists, biblical scholars who may be minorities uh, to come to your seminary because uh, the best way to teach the students how to approach the Bible in this way is when they see it in the flesh in the professor. Uh, professors have a profound impact on seminarians, and so that would that would be an encouragement for me to tell uh, those in authority to try to hire minorities uh, into their institutions. As far as the classroom, the more I thought about this question, it's difficult to define because your ethnicity is who you are, and there are some things that can hardly be communicated. It's just the way I use my hands, the way I move my body, the way uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> the intonation of my voice, all of those things are so bound to my ethnicity that it's hard to pinpoint something that I would use that marks me out as a Hispanic that will help them during the classroom instruction. But but one thing I will say, and again, this is not exclusive to the Hispanic uh, way of teaching, it would be that there is a more dialogical stress uh, in the way that I teach in the classroom. We believe in questions and answers, uh, not in the sense that I give you a long 45 minutes lecture and then I'll give you two minutes for answers. But throughout the process of teaching the course, there is more of a give and take where the student is not uh, put down as not being an expert or anything like that, but uh, where it's really a dialogue between the two and uh, trying to land the plane, as it were, uh, by means of this uh, dialogical approach. So that would be very important for me as the particular uh, ethnic minority that I am in the classroom. And also telling stories. Again, uh, we may be uh, teaching a class on, you know, I teach a class on First Timothy. So I may take a concept that I'm trying to explain in First Timothy and then just tell a story that will help them understand that concept that may be kind of abstract. So that's one of the ways that uh, that my ethnicity plays a part in the classroom. I've actually thought a lot about this. And I like to speak of narrative worlds. And what I'm saying is that when you have a white professor and maybe a largely white classroom and a few ethnic minorities, then the narrative world of the classroom comes from the dominant culture. So the stories, the analogies, the movie references all come from one place. And I know that this is to give a very simple example, it's like my, me and my friends they grew up watching Friends and Seinfeld. And so, like, those narratives kind of has a way of normalizing a particular culture. And so one of the ways that, that makes my class different is that when you come in, the narrative world within which the class is structured is from an African-American context. And so that means when I think about how to explain something, I try to explain it from where, from my own experiences. And so when it's actually a part of me bringing myself to the text. And I remember I used to try to do the other thing, which is to translate all of these things into the dominant culture so the students might understand. But one of the things that happens is when you have sometimes an ethnic minority student who kind of never gets the joke, if that makes any sense, and they're, like, excluded, then the class itself oftentimes can be alienating by the nature of the conversation. And so the disorientation that my white students feel in class is somewhat intentional because now they're getting an experience of what it's like to be taught when their culture isn't the dominant worldview from within which the the teaching happens. And so I teach, what I what I say is I teach it as an intentionally African-American context, even though the students may say, well, I don't understand why he used this story or why he used this analogy or why he addressed this particular issue. But that very disorientation that some of my majority culture, culture students experience allows them to understand what their classmate, classmates may experience in other classes. And I've had um, minority students come up to me after class and just say, thank you, because I, I felt like someone from my culture is actually leading the discussion. One of the other things that happen is, and this is true, it is sometimes possible for majority culture students to go through their entire educational experience and even their entire work experience and never actually have someone like a person of color in charge. 
And if you ask yourself, like, and maybe anyone who listens to this podcast, I'm a, I am a white listener. How many times have I had a black boss, a black pastor, or a black professor? So if 95% of your experience is with the dominant culture in charge, it's very easy to get this idea that we're in charge because we're more competent. And you may say, I don't think that, but then it's it's hard not to have that experience. And so what I want to say is that having it, and it also means that when you go out into a church, how comfortable are you with other people being in charge? And so having me as kind of a leader to in a classroom is important pedagogically for students because they get used to experiencing different leadership styles and different um, cultures at the front. And it changes the nature of the conversation. And the ways that people ask questions to me is different than they may ask questions to other people. And so I do think that there's a ministry of presence that by very by the very fact of having a ethnic minority leading them. I, I was telling this joke on Twitter the other day. If I had a student and part Part of my assignment is they had to cite one African-American, one, actually one person of color in a project they were doing. And one of my students like cited something I said in the lecture. And at first I was like, well, hold on. <laughs> That's what I had in mind. But then I was like, oh, like I, I am the, the first kind of ethnic minority scholar who they know. And, they, and they, they beat the system, right? But I do think it also speaks to them. It's like they're, they're recognizing that, that what I do is in some sense kind of unique. And it takes a little while for students to get adjusted to it. But eventually they all come around when they realize that I'm not a completely crazy person. This has been so helpful. And I've got one more practical question that I'd love to ask uh, each of you to address briefly, if you would. Most of our listeners are pastors or lay leaders in churches. Most of our listeners are not academics. They're, they're church folks and they're leaders of congregations. If you could give them just a little bit of counsel about how to apply the realities and the insights we've been discussing here today in the context of the local church, what would you want to say? That may be challenging for them because it may mean that they might have to go out and meet somebody who is who doesn't look like them. So uh, there's nothing like meeting someone who is just different from you, who's a strong believer and uh, and building a friendship, uh, maybe inviting them to your church to, to teach or to preach. That would be something I would encourage them to do. To the extent that there are people who like to read, I think uh, I would point them, uh, for example, to um, many of the books written by church historian Justo Gonzalez. He's written some really good work, and he wrote a work on St. Augustine, uh, that argues that uh, Augustine's African background, African uh, ethnicity, really shaped his theology. Uh, so I would I would suggest try to go out and meet somebody who, who may be Hispanic, African, or, or what have you, whatever American, uh, North American minority, but also uh, read books written by solid Christians who, who do not belong to the majority culture and bring their ethnicity into play when they're interpreting uh, theology or the Bible and so on? Yes, I would say that the first thing is that our pastors and lay leaders have to actually begin to see the Bible's actual vision for ethnic groups. Uh, one of the examples that I talked about um, in a book that I'm writing is when the people of Israel 
went out of Egypt. And that when the people of Israel left slavery in Egypt, there is this passage that says a mixed multitude went up with them. And the question of why does the author of um, Genesis say that a mixed multitude, why does he make that 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 claim. Why does he highlight that? That's because the promise in the in the God made to Abraham was that in Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so the mixed multitude that went out of Egypt who left slavery were not simply Hebrews, but they're also Egyptians and probably other Africans. And the Bible is making a point that when God acted to liberate Israel, within that liberation there was also liberation of other ethnic groups, and those ethnic groups are then included in the people of God. The purpose of that story then is to point to the fact that the gospel was for everyone, and that the church is almost only, and this is in the fullness of the time we get to the New Testament, the church is only itself when it has the people whom God has called to it, and God has called to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so what we consider ethnic diversity is not some political fad. It is a manifestation of the universal saving power of the gospel. And so until we're committed to that as a theological truth, then we're not going to be willing to do the hard work and suffering required to make it a reality. Because it's one thing to say that I want to do something, but then when it gets hard, if it's not saying, this is what I believe God wants, then we're going to give up. And what I would challenge someone to do is to actually read the Bible and ask yourself this question. As I read the Old Testament, as I read the prophets, as I read the Psalms, as I read the the law, what does this say about the place of all people within God's kingdom? And then open the New Testament and look at places like in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, where at the heart of this thing is Paul saying, no, 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 Jew and Gentile, we have to be together because this is the way that God wanted it to be. Now, once you get that theological commitment, it's going to create a crisis. And that crisis is going to be, how do we make this vision for the people of God fleshed in our community? That's going to take them on the journey. And I can't point out all of the steps along that journey, but when people get that conviction, it hits them in the direction of where they want to go. And if if I've accomplished that during these 30 minutes, then I have succeeded. A good concluding word. You have been listening to Dr. Esau McCauley of Wheaton College and Dr. Osvaldo Padilla of Beeson Divinity School talking about the importance of minority biblical interpretation. We thank them both uh, for their experience and their insights and for helping our audience today. We thank our audience members for tuning in, and we wish you a wonderful 2020. Happy New Year. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.